This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 7, Episode 19. Poorly understood. What America gets wrong about poverty. Speaking with co-author Professor Mark Rank about his new book. Mark Rank is the Herbert Hadley Professor at the Brown School of Social Work at the Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. He's widely recognized as one of the foremost experts on issues of poverty, inequality, and social justice. Dr. Rank has published numerous scholarly articles. His first book, Living on the Edge, explored the realities of surviving on public assistance and achieved widespread critical acclaim. His 2014 book, Chasing the American Dream, shed light on the tenuous nature of the American dream in today's economy. His research has been reported in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Christian Science Monitor, and the Chicago Tribune, to mention but a few publications. He's also provided research expertise to members of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives and many other national and state organizations. He joins us today from his office at the Washington University campus in St. Louis. Welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thanks, Jim. It's great to be with you. Wonderful. Well, listen, let's get right into your book, Poorly Understood. Poverty in America has some surprising and alarming aspects that you reveal in your book. The fact that 60% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 75 will experience poverty at some point is a chilling statistic, and it's unfathomable to many of our listeners overseas. We do have listeners in 24 countries, including all of the OECD countries, with their robust social safety nets. So why don't we start there? Our overseas friends and visitors think that they know the United States, but then they hear a statistic like that one, and they realize how little they know about our country, and for that matter, how little we, as Americans, know about our own country and our history of poverty. Yes. So I think what you said about uh, other OECD countries having a robust safety net is really the key here, and that is that in the United States we have just about the weakest social safety net of, of any of those countries. And the result is that when things happen to people, there's not a lot to protect them in the United States. And so... Um, the statistic that you referred to, that 60% of folks between uh, 18 and 75 at some point will experience poverty, um, is the result of looking over a period of time, things happen to people that they didn't anticipate. So losing a job, a family splitting up, a medical emergency, or a pandemic. Um, And when these things happen, 
there's really not a lot to protect people in the United States compared to the other OECD countries from falling into poverty. So that's one of the reasons why that statistic is so high. And it, it comes back to what you were saying about a, ro a robust safety net and that the United States really doesn't have that safety net in place. Now, it was very interesting as I was reading through your, your book. It's divided into five sections. It talks about the geography of poverty, um, why we still have poverty, uh, the cost of poverty. So that, that uh, the organization of the book makes it really quite readable. Now, one of the, uh, one of the success stories, however, is, the, uh, is seniors. You cite the fact that in 1959, 35% of American seniors lived in poverty. But today, that number is down to 8%. How did we, how were we as a country and as a society able to fix that problem of senior poverty taking, you know, going from 35% yeah. senior poor to 8% senior poor? Yeah, so this is an example of, um, you know, a robust social safety net, in this case, in the form of Social Security. But we made the decision, the kind of moral decision, that, you know, if if you're elderly, um, you really shouldn't be in poverty, that there's something wrong about that. And so, as you said, in 1959, uh, the, the rate of poverty for the elderly was around 35%, which was the highest of any age group. Today, it's around 8 or 9%, which is the lowest of any age group. Mm -hmm. And the main reason for that has to do with both the, the uh, expansion of Social Security benefits in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and the introduction of the Medicare and the Medicaid program in 1965 that provided health care insurance for the elderly. And those programs had a dramatic effect and, and really was the key uh, determinant of the falling rates of poverty for the elderly. So it's estimated that today, if there were no Social Security um, program in the United States, the rate for the for the elderly would go, poverty rate would go from you know eight or nine percent to around forty percent. So that's a, a really vivid example of how a social program and a social safety net can be very very effective in terms of reducing poverty. Now, one of the other major reforms for seniors, of course, happened in 1974 with the ERISA Act, whereby uh, IRAs were brought in. So, so seniors have had an opportunity since 1974 to save for retirement. Um, some seniors do, some seniors don't. So, so there, there has been, there, there was that savings element that was also introduced in 1974 with ERISA. But, but let's take the success that was achieved among seniors. And, you know, we, I remember the days uh, back in the late 1950s when uh, our relatives or neighbors who were seniors were, were terrified of going yeah. to the doctor or being bankrupted or, or basically being impoverished by doctor bills, cost of operations, et cetera, mm -hmm. and how that turned on a dime in 1965 with the Medicare Act mm -hmm. uh, by LBJ. And of course, it was Harry Truman who got the very first mm -hmm. um, uh, Medicare card, right, in 1965 when right. LBJ signed that legislation at in, in Independence, Missouri, your home state there. 
Um, now, yeah. Mark, why can't we do yeah. something similar for our kids? Because one of the other statistics that's cited in your book is mm -hmm. the, the cost of childhood poverty and how currently we're running at a, a cost yeah. of one trillion dollars a year yeah so so this is um this is another uh chapter in the book where we focus on thinking about um what is the economic cost of poverty in the united states um there's certainly a huge um, moral cost um but but what is the sort of the economic cost and so we sat down and uh, used the latest research that was out there and looked at the connection. We know that higher rates of poverty among children is, is associated with higher health care costs. We know it's associated with less economic productivity when children become adults because they have less education and less skills and so on. And we know it's associated with higher criminal justice costs in terms of incarceration, which is extremely expensive, and other things as well. So we factored in all of those um, costs, and uh, we, we argue that this is actually quite a conservative number because there are a number of things we couldn't take into account, uh, other kinds of costs. And we came up with an annual estimate that childhood poverty in the United States costs us slightly over $1 trillion a year. So to put that in perspective, in 2015, that was about 28% of the entire federal budget. And what we're doing is we're paying for poverty on the back end of the problem rather than on the front end of the problem. And it's always more expensive to pay for a problem on the back end. Um, the other thing that we show that I think is very powerful is that for every dollar we would spend reducing childhood poverty, we would save between 7 and $12 down the road. So the argument is that not only is reducing childhood poverty the morally right thing to do, but it's also economically the smart thing to do. And going back to what we were saying in the beginning, other OECD countries are very much aware of this, and they have things in place so that um, children do not fall into, the po into poverty to the extent that the United States does. And one of the reasons they do that is because it's smart economic policy. It's smart economic policy to invest in your human resources, and that's what we need to do much more in the United States. Now, in the book, you also mentioned that President Biden and Senator Romney um, apparently are in agreement that mm -hmm. there should be a child allowance. Could you explain what a child allowance yeah. is? Because they're very common in uh, European countries. And yeah. what the likelihood of something like that passing the Congress with President Biden in control? Yeah, so as you said, this is an idea that's been around in um, a policy that's been around in, in uh, European countries for, for really for decades. And the idea, it's a very simple and it's a very straightforward idea. And it's, it's a basically a subset of the idea of a universal basic income. And what it says is that if you have children, um, we're going to provide you with uh, a monthly um, cash um, stipend to help you raise that child. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, President Biden has uh, proposed uh, something between three and four hundred dollars a month. Um, now, this is a very it's a very direct way of dealing with. Uh, economic insecurity and with poverty, that if poverty is a lack of money, 
then getting more money into folks' hands is a very straightforward way of doing that. And as you said, what's really interesting about this idea now is that both President Biden and Senator Romney proposed variations on this. So I think we are in a window of time here, and maybe it's because of the pandemic and, and all of the sort of economic collapse that we've seen, that that there's a, a, a window of opportunity to, here to do something very um, very structural and very proactive in terms of reducing poverty. So I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually guardedly optimistic. It's in, it's, it will now take place in July for a year. And the hope is that, um, it will continue on a, on a regular basis after that year. And I think as folks, you know, receive these benefits and realize, hey, you know, this is really a help to me in terms of raising my kids. Um, I'm hopeful that it will become part of our regular policy, as it as it as it is in in again most um, European countries. So, Mark, that's actually that reform is actually going to take place in July of this year, 2020. Yeah, so it's part of the it's part of the um, pandemic, you know, um, relief fund that passed. So it will it will occur for uh, for the for a year from July, you know, first to the following. Uh, July and um, and then the question is, will it become uh, a permanent um, fixture in terms of policy? And that will, you know, we'll wait and see what will happen with that. But yeah, it, it will it will happen for at least for a year. Well, fingers crossed. Hopefully, hopefully, having taken the step for one year, uh, we will yeah. be able to renew that going forward. And it, as we look back on that move by both Biden and Romney in years in the future, maybe that will be the Medicare moment for kids, you know, as Medicare changed the trajectory for senior poverty, maybe this legislation will change the trajectory for childhood poverty going forward. I I think you're exactly right. I think that's a really good um, analogy there with the sort of the 1965 Medicare um, introduction for seniors. This might be the moment for children where, um, you know, this will have, there's been a a couple of analysis done, and, and I think it's estimated that introducing this program will reduce childhood poverty by something like 40 to 50 percent, which is huge. You know, it's like cutting poverty. Yeah, it's cutting poverty in half. So, um, and, and as I said, I think when people see this and receive this benefit, they're going to say, hey, this is a pretty good idea. Uh, I think we ought to keep this around. So uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Absolutely. Now, one of the other points that, that was made in your book is the fact that wages have stagnated in real terms Mm -hmm. since 1973. Here we are, what, 48 years Mm -hmm. on from 1973, but in real terms, wages have pretty much stagnated at where they were in 1973. Again, that's another mind-blowing, unfathomable statistic. Could you give us a little bit of background on that, Mark? Yeah, so this this is focusing on um, male workers who are working full time in the labor market, and their wages, as you said, in 1973, once we control for inflation, were uh, slightly higher than they were last year. Now, that's as you said, that's amazing. I mean, it, it, what it says is that over a nearly 50-year period, if you're a man working in the in the labor market you haven't gotten ahead at all. There, there, it's completely, uh, progress has stalled. 
And I think that this is what, you know, this is certainly what um, uh, ex-President Trump tied into was this sort of feeling that, you know, I've been working, I've been, you know, following the rules, but I'm not getting ahead. And that's true. There have been a lot of people that are not getting ahead. And the reason is, I mean, there's lots of reasons that we can talk about, but, um, you know, part of the part of the uh, reasons behind this is that the economy has been producing more and more low-wage jobs as we've sort of... Um, uh, gotten uh, affected by globalization and sort of in uh, lower costs and things like that. It's been driving wages down. Uh, unionization has been reducing over a long period of time. Um, and so, uh, you know, people just are not getting ahead. And this is a, you know, w- what I point to throughout the book, I mean, we, you know, we can talk about a little bit, is that this is really, these are structural issues. This doesn't have anything to do with Americans not working hard. In fact, Americans put in more hours than in, in, in most other countries. But the problem is structural. The problem is an economic and a political um, failing that is, you know, resulting in people just not getting ahead. And that's what we need to to focus on and to address. Mm-hmm. Now, you had also met in the book, there's also a statistic, again, chilling statistic, that 40% of jobs in the U.S. economy are low-paying, many of them minimum wage jobs. Talk to me about that. I mean, how can we possibly get yeah. ahead? How can people uh, aspire to the American dream if basically they're looking at a, a minimum wage job? Yeah, so it's estimated that, as you said, 40%, around 40% of all jobs currently in the United States are counted as low-paying jobs, which in in these analysis is less than $16 an hour. And there's no way. you If you're working full-time at one of these jobs, and let's say that you have a family of three, uh, you're still going to be in poverty. The other thing with, with many of these jobs is, they don't have the benefits that they used to have. Um, so how we know that health care has become much more difficult to get through your job. Um, but other benefits are also um, fewer, you know, things like uh, vacation time and being able to have a pension or a retirement. These are harder and harder to come by. So again, this is a structural kind of issue that has to do with the economy that we really need to address. Um, and so we need to think about, okay, uh, given that, how can we uh, increase the wages and, and, and get people up to some kind of a livable wage in terms of their job? And so we can think about, you know, raising the minimum wage and we can think about other policies like the earned income tax credit that will supplement the wages of folks at the bottom uh, of the income distribution. And when I say the bottom of the income distribution, we're talking about, you know, almost half of the American population is working at low wage jobs. And that's you've we've heard these stories for years about uh, people who work at Walmart or uh, Amazon actually having to go on food stamps that the, yeah. the, we talk about the working poor and that staff at uh, no, I, I understand that Walmart and Target and Amazon, uh, as a result of shining the light of uh, work that you've done and that uh, that the public has become aware of these low wages, all of those companies have now been shamed into yeah. <laughs> providing yeah. 15, 16, $17 an hour, which is, which is still very low, but at least yeah. it's an improvement. Yeah. In fact, I just, I just finished, uh, just today, I just finished this 
book on uh, on Amazon called Fulfillment, and you know it talks about um, people working at the at those jobs. And, um, you know, and, and you're right, uh, it, you know, it, 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 first of all, the, the jobs, many of these jobs don't pay very much at all. But also the other thing that, uh, that we need to take into account is the working conditions for many of these jobs is really bad. Um, you know, this is, this is really, this is difficult work. This is um, physically, you know, draining kind of work. And people don't get paid very much. Their schedules are are often chaotic. You know, they have to come in when you know uh, under uh, you know not a lot of uh, lead time, um, and so all of these things are have reduced sort of the the work environment, both in terms of of not paying very much, but also in terms of the working conditions and not having many benefits attached to them. Now, Mark, I was one so, of the statistics. Yeah, so, I'm so, sorry. Go ahead. Well, let, let, let me just let me just. Um, I think at this point it, it would be helpful for the um, for our listeners to kind of be uh, uh, aware of a, a little analogy that I really like in terms of thinking about all these things, um, and that is, um, you know, this idea that that. Um, there aren't enough opportunities for there not, aren't enough decent work opportunities for all Americans that need them. And what I do is I use this analogy of musical chairs to illustrate this. So I say, well, let's imagine a game of musical chairs where we have ten players and eight chairs. Players circle around, music stops, two people lose out. Okay, who loses out? Well, some, not in a good position when the music stops, not as fast, not as quick, all those kinds of things. That explains who those two individuals are that lost out, but it doesn't explain why there are two losers in the game. And the reason why there are two losers in the game is there aren't enough chairs for everybody playing the game. And that's what that's the way we viewed poverty in this country. We've looked at poverty in terms of the characteristics of who loses out rather than looking at the structure of the game. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say Poverty is the result of a failing at the economic and the political levels. It's that we don't have enough chairs for everyone who's playing the game. And so I think that we need to kind of have that in mind as we're talking about these issues of poverty and inequality. Coming back to this idea of, uh, of politics, uh, earlier before we, uh, before we got onto the program, we were talking about Milton Friedman. We were talking about supply-side economics. Milton Friedman, of course, was the Chicago School monetarist uh, economist who won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1974, uh, became very influential in the economies in Chile, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Um, when Ronald Reagan became president in 1981, he, of course, talked about supply-side economics, Arthur Laffer, which was a type of monetarist policies. And those monetarist policies seem to somehow give carte blanche, correct me if I'm wrong, but seem to give carte blanche to, uh, to the American corporate sector to cut back on things like pensions. There's only, what, 13% of American companies, private sector companies, mm-hmm. that offer traditional pensions. To cut back on things like health insurance, sick days, and all of those benefits. But it seems to me that that era 
starting with Milton Friedman in the 1970s mm-hmm. and continued on through Ronald Reagan, it seems to me that that era is now playing itself out because of the huge disparities of wealth and poverty now in mm-hmm. the United States. What are your thoughts about that? And what kind of economic model would replace that monetarist model, do you think? Yeah, and, and as we were talking about before we started, um, I think that that timing is is exactly right. That really since the really the end of the '60s, early 1970s, we've seen a change in terms of policy and really sort of this idea of letting the free market operate. You know that that Ronald Reagan, you know, really introduced in the United States. Um, and, um, you know, the result of that is, uh, one of the results of it is that, you know, there used to be, a, kind of a, a social contract between the, uh, employer and the employee that we're, we're in this together and we need to think about, you know, each of our needs, um, as, as a whole. That has totally, you know, broken down. It, it, it's, you know, all about greed and profit and this kind of thing. And I think you're right. I think that we are, you know, these things tend to go in cycles. So we've been in like a 40 or 50 year cycle of this kind of, you know, lousy fair capitalism, um, you know, let the free market operate, you know, government is the problem, not the solution. And we see the results here. The result is that when you do that, you get more and more inequality. So, you know, that's the other thing we deal with in the book is, the inequality that you have in the United States is the most extreme of any of the OECD countries. Um, you know, one little uh, uh, sort of picture that I like to like to use is that, speaking of well-known um, economists, the economist um, Paul Samuelson uh, had a had an introductory economics textbook for you know years and years and years. And in the first edition of that textbook in 1948, he said, if we um, had drew, uh, built an income pyramid where every, where we took ch- uh, child's blocks and every block represented um, uh, $1,000 of income, that in 1948, the peak of that, of the income distribution would be uh, roughly the, the height of the Eiffel Tower, and most of us in 1948 would be in several yards or feet um, uh, from the bottom. So most of us would be there, but the top would be the Eiffel Tower. By the last edition of his textbook in 2001, most of us still would be within a yard or two of the ground in terms of income, but the peak of the income distribution would now have to be represented by Mount Everest. And picture that difference between the Eiffel Tower and Mount Everest. And so some folks have been seeing tremendous gains, you know, the top five, one percent of the of the income distribution. Mm-hmm. Whereas the bottom eighty percent, as we talked about with, with male median wages, the bottom eighty percent have really seen no gains at all. And I think you're right that that we're entering a new period where people are saying, you know, this isn't working. Uh, we need we need some basic structural changes mm-hmm. here in terms of uh, you know having this economy and having the society work for everyone, not just those at the top. I I couldn't agree more. And I think we we saw that we we've seen that in, in several of the recent presidential elections. Again, we're we're nonpartisan on this show. We don't we're not blue. Mm-hmm. We're not red. We're not. But in any case, mm-hmm. we've seen that we've seen that same question posed 
by all of the presidential candidates, we're just not we're not getting ahead. We're working hard, but it's like mm-hmm. running on a treadmill. Um, now, one of mm-hmm. the one of the other statistics that you used in uh, in the book mm-hmm. that was uh, quite stark is the fact that um, the the largest single group of the largest single group in poverty in the United States uh-huh. is not Latinx. It's not African American. It's actually white. Now, of course, the, uh, the the white demographic still continues to be the largest single demographic, but that was also quite right. a surprise. Yeah, and it's you know again, it's sort of like the the myths and the stereotypes around poverty in the United States is that you know it happens to somebody else. It it, it doesn't happen to me. It happens to folks who are black or brown or living in inner cities. Well, as you said the largest group, actually racial group in, in poverty, are whites. And um, there actually are more people living in poverty in suburbs than there are in central cities. And some of the most extreme poverty in the United States is found in rural America, such as Appalachia and the Deep South and American Indian Reservations. But this issue of kind of them versus us has been used over and over and over again. Certainly Trump um, used this a lot, but it, it, it has a long, long history behind it. And the issue of race in particular has been used to divide poor whites from poor, and poor blacks from seeing their common interests. And we have a great quote here. We, we talked about LBJ a little bit earlier. Um, and this was a quote from, from uh, Lyndon Johnson um, in 1960, and he was talking to an aide about this whole issue. And, he, and here's what he says. I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And that's exactly what has happened in this country over and over again. Race has been used to divide folks from seeing their common interests. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully as we move away from, as, as there's a broad, there seems to be a, cons- uh, a consensus emerging that the period of free market laissez-faire economics has played itself out over the last 40 plus years and that it's time for it's time to redress the balance now as we're redressing the balance with economic policies though our economy is undergoing a fundamental change and shift from the traditional manufacturing consumption production economy to a, a very different kind of economy a high-tech economy an economy which is uh, economy which is dominated by uh, by the internet, which is dominated by concerns about climate change. Um, talk to me about that. How this uh, does that make the transition to a more equitable uh, a, a more equitable economic norm? Does that make it harder? The fact that we're dealing with a very with, with a, a brave new world and yeah. a completely new. Uh, new economy and new kind of companies. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I don't, you know, I, I don't have a necessarily a crystal ball <laughs> here, but but uh, but I think um, I think the bottom line, regardless of how the economy changes, um, and I think you're right, it obviously is changing. Um, but the bottom line is that we need to invest in our human potential. We need to invest in our children and have them, you know, get a 
good education and get the kind of nutrition that they need, regardless of, of how the economy you know plays itself out, because that's the future. And that's what we don't do in this country. You know, other countries do this to a much greater extent than in the United States. And and again, maybe we are now in a cycle where we're seeing we're beginning to recognize that and beginning to recognize that, you know what, we're all in this together and we can't just write off a segment of the population. We need to invest in everyone. And um and so I think, you know, there are definitely, you know, ideas out there about how the economy is changing and you know, I think with President Biden's uh, emphasis on uh, investing in the infrastructure, like that's a really good step. I think that's really important, regardless of of how the economy changes. Um, the idea of you know possibly a green new deal, um, we're going to see more of that in the future. So, um, but regardless of, of how this plays out, again, investing in our in our human potential um, and our human capabilities is really really critical in, in all of this. Now, in the uh, in the 2020 campaign, one of the candidates, Andrew Yang, talked about mm-hmm. a universal income, and he talked mm-hmm. about a, a universal income giving, I guess, giving every single man, woman, and Mm -hmm. child uh, a basic income. And his point was that as we transition to this new Mm high-tech economy, there may not be the uh, there mm. we may not have the thousands and millions of jobs that we had before. Therefore, we need pr- to provide a universal income. Uh, and I see that uh, Andrew is running for uh, for mayor yeah. and giving De Blasio a run for his money. Could you talk yeah. to us about the possible role for a universal income yeah. and how that might help us combat poverty? Yeah, so it's an interesting idea, and, and you know, we were talking earlier about the child allowance, which is kind of a subset of the universal basic income. So this idea really goes back a long way. Uh, Thomas Paine in 1776 proposed a universal basic income. Um, uh, Milton Friedman, who we were talking about earlier, uh, he proposed the idea of a universal basic income. And, uh, the, yeah, the idea is that, you know, regardless of um, whatever you're doing, you know, we're going to provide, you know, a certain amount of income to you on a monthly or annual basis. And I think that, you know, Andrew Yang was bringing up this issue of, you know, that that there may not be enough jobs out there and that maybe we do need something like this, which I think is interesting. The problem, I think, particularly in the United States, is that we don't like to give um, something to people for nothing. So people are going to say, well, why should they get money and not be have to do anything to, to uh, receive that money? And that's, that's an uphill battle because, you know, in other work I've talked about, you know, the, the United States is really steeped in the idea of rugged individualism, that, you know, you do it on your own, you're self-reliant, all that kind of stuff. And that's really um, clouded how we view a lot of things. So I think it's an interesting idea. Um, it actually, uh, a couple years ago, Switzerland actually put it on a, on the ballot, and it, it did not pass. Um, but, you know, uh, interestingly, there's some research coming out. There was a study that, that was done in Stockton, California, in your, in your state, yes. and um, uh, found that actually they did a, the, an experiment, and they found that, that the folks that, that got the, um, the universal basic income uh, did better in a number of different ways, but interestingly, they actually had a higher rate of employment 
than the folks who didn't get the uh, universal basic income. So that kind of goes counter to that to that stereotype that's out there. So I think it's a really interesting idea, and we'll we'll have to see where it goes. But uh, I, I definitely want to uh, have that on the table as something to discuss. Well. Mark, as we enter the last few minutes of our of our mm. podcast, we've touched on a couple of uh, of a very perhaps promising and optimistic. I'd always, I always like to end on an optimistic note here. After all, we are yeah. in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> give us some. Uh, of course, the universal basic income that could be a that could be a game changer on a very positive uh, note. And of course, the children's allowance to uh, to try to tackle that $1 trillion annual uh, negative cost that, uh, that unfortunately children are, are having to bear. Give us a sense as we wrap up uh, this podcast, what we should be looking for on a, uh, in terms of positive reforms coming down the road to help us crack this nut of poverty in our society. Yeah, I think um, all those things that you mentioned are really um, great ideas and and things that we should pursue. Um, the other thing that that you know we have talked about that I think is so important is that so many people are working at jobs that don't pay a decent wage, and we need to get those jobs mm-hmm. up to a, a more livable wage. It, it seems you know President Biden has said this that. There's something fundamentally wrong that if you're working full time in America, you shouldn't be poor. Mm-hmm. And so we need to get, you know, the minimum wage actually still in some states is seven twenty five an hour, which is, you know, just crazy. So we need to get that minimum wage up to, you know, something more like fifteen, sixteen dollars an hour. Um, and we need to think about um, ways of, of also supplementing low wage workers so that their wages are higher. So I think that that's that's um, something that we that that's very positive that that actually there's more and more talk about this. Um, you know, uh, 10 years ago, people weren't really talking about these these issues and this inequality and poverty, and, and now they are. So, uh, again, I think we've got a really great window of opportunity um, to deal with some of these things. Well, well, certainly the multiplier effect of increasing the federal minimum wage from 725 to 15, just the multiplier effect as workers would be going out and spending that extra seven or eight dollars per right. hour, we would all benefit. Right. The economy as a whole would benefit from that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I have a friend here who's an economist, and we teach a course together, and these are some of the things that he talks about. That actually, you know, the rising inequality in the United States is causing a drag on overall economic growth, because just because of what you're saying. The folks in sort of the bottom 50%, 60% of the income distribution don't have as much money to spend. If they had more money to spend, it would lead to further growth and benefit benefit us all. So that's kind of uh, you know, we want to end on an optimistic note. That's a real win-win for everyone. Yes, absolutely. Well, Mark, I'd like to thank you very much for for your insights on the subject of poverty and uh, economic injustice, uh, and and certainly ending on an upbeat note that uh, that reforms like this will be for the benefit of society as a whole. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank you very much, Mark, for uh, for joining us. And I'd also like to commend to the attention of my listeners your new book, which is called Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. It's available on Amazon.com. 
and it's published by the Oxford University Press. So once again, Mark, thank you for sharing your insights today with us. Oh, thanks, Jim. It was really terrific uh, getting a chance to talk about some of these issues with you. Well, thank you, Mark. And for our listeners, please take a moment to visit our website at www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com and subscribe. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, it ensures that new episodes come directly to your inbox. It also lets you listen to the other 143 episodes, read my blog, peruse my book, leave a comment, or send me an email. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting from America's favorite city, San Francisco.